Hello and welcome to the Irwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Joanne Jeffries and I'll be the host in the hot seat today. Most of us are aware of a family member or friend who's been diagnosed with cancer. Mesothelioma is a type of cancer that is usually associated with asbestos exposure. Every year, over 2,500 people sadly lose their lives to this condition, yet it's still broadly unheard of. In fact, over half of UK cancer deaths are caused by rare or less common cancers. Mesothelioma is one such cancer that has historically suffered due to underrepresentation and funding. One of the ways we can tackle this is by raising awareness of the condition and the importance of research. That's exactly what our client Mick May has done through the recent release of his own book called Cancer and Pisces. This is the incredible story of Mick's unique experience of cancer interwoven with the joy and escapism of fishing. Having first met Mick in 2013, shortly after his diagnosis, I speak personally when I say that Mick is truly influential and inspirational with an energetic and engaging personality and a genuine passion to help those who are less fortunate than him. We're delighted to welcome Mick on the podcast, where he's joined by Liz Darlison from Mesothelioma UK. Liz is head of services at this fantastic charity, which provides a specialist support service to anyone affected by mesothelioma. Erwin Mitchell are proud to have supported Mesothelioma UK since its launch in 2004. Like Mick, Liz inspires all those around her and her hard work and dedication have helped the charity grow into what it is today. The charity now funds 28 Mesothelioma UK clinical nurse specialists nationally, as well as providing support and guidance to many other healthcare professionals. Liz is also a mesothelioma nurse consultant at the University Hospital of Leicester. We're also joined by Ian Bailey. Ian and I are both specialist asbestos disease solicitors, and we represented Mick in what we would describe as being one of the most complex and challenging legal cases of our career, which we'll come on to a bit later. In the podcast, we're going to have an in-depth discussion on all things mesothelioma, with a special focus on Mick's journey. So thanks to everyone for joining me today. Mick's experience is relevant to most cancer sufferers, but looking more specifically at mesothelioma, Liz, could you give us a bit more information on the illness for those who are not familiar with it? Mesothelioma is a disease of mesothelial cells that are found in covering and lining tissue in mostly the major cavities of the body, so the chest cavity and the abdominal cavity. Um, It's caused by exposure to asbestos, and sometimes that exposure can be 20, 30, 40 years prior to developing any symptoms. It's um, a cancer. I probably should have said that it's a cancer. Unfortunately, the UK, we have the highest incidence of the disease in the world. And there is a direct correlation between our incidence of mesothelioma and the amount of asbestos that we've used in the country. Um, So it's a it's a treatable disease. It's not one that we have had success in terms of curing, but we're increasingly seeing a lot more treatment options coming on board and trial clinical trial options that are giving us a real air of optimism, should I say, about improving the outcomes of people living with mesothelioma. 
traditionally it's been associated with people in construction industry that type of thing but actually what we're seeing is that because of the background level of asbestos in our country we're seeing people from all walks of life so so nobody really is spared the risk of exposure to asbestos and there's no safe level um, when it comes to mesothelioma. And as you say, it, it comes about from often from exposure many years earlier. So it must come as quite a shock when people have that diagnosis. I know for you, Mick, in the book, you start with the period of that devastating day when you got the diagnosis. But somehow you've managed to look at things slightly differently um, and take a positive outlook. I certainly wasn't very positive and optimistic immediately after the diagnosis. Um, and, you know, like so many other sufferers and all of the people who get mesothelioma, it's, it's devastating because you lead a perfectly normal life. And then a week later, you know, you work out you've got a horrible disease, which is incurable. But um, I was very lucky and I know it. And I'm very grateful. And I was very lucky because... Uh, immediately a number of treatment options opened up, which I could see were probably going to give me a greater life expectancy than the rather devastating statistics that you see on the internet. Um, and so I started down a track of having those interventions, starting with surgery. Um, and after a period of six months in which I'd had radiotherapy, surgery, and chemotherapy, um, I suddenly realized that I might have maybe a couple of years of normal life ahead of me. Um, and so I was very lucky. And then in, in those two years, I got to see, I got to calm down. And then I got to start enjoying life, genuinely enjoying life. And so that's what happened to me I, because of these options, which lots of people don't get. They don't get diagnosed early enough or for whatever reason. A lot of it is sometimes geographic reasons. They don't have access to the right specialists quickly enough. Um, but I was just very fortunate. And so my life suddenly became... Or suddenly, within a year, my life seemed in a much happier place. So looking at the support around you was quite important. Yes, it was. And, and, and that support was, you know, the wonderful medical team I've got, um, which gradually got larger as I as they kept on finding more ways of, you know, deferring, you know, really difficult stuff. Um it was my family, uh, and it was one or two notable individuals who gave me some really good advice. Um, and, you know, within about six to nine months of diagnosis, you know, my life suddenly seemed rosy again. Now, I state again, I was incredibly lucky because the, you know, a very, very large proportion of the users of Liz's magnificent charity may not have that length of time. And that's the really sad thing. And Ian, when clients come to you shortly after diagnosis, it's a difficult period for them. So how do you help them to 
focus on their condition and support them during that difficult, traumatic time. Very good to hear Mick um, talk about his um, his own experience, both on this uh, discussion and also uh, in his book. But as he says, sadly, that's not the path that is the usual one for the majority of people that uh, you and I see, Joe. Um, I think that the sorts of things that um, I would say are important when speaking to um, people like Mick um, who are diagnosed with mesothelioma is it, it's you've got to have an understanding of, of the disease itself, of, of how it's likely um, to progress. And I don't think there's anybody who does the job that you and I do, Joe, who don't share a, a passion, a different sort of passion for acting for um, clients or patients. That Liz obviously has passion for all of her patients. And I, I think that we have passion and compassion for for all of our uh, clients. So you can't do the job without um, understanding the position in which our clients find themselves and, and wanting to try and make a uh, make a difference. And Liz, what's the role that Miss Leo UK plays um, in supporting patients actually right from the outset, but throughout their journey? We try to make the NHS as accessible and the very best it can be for everyone and anyone, irrespective of where they are when they're diagnosed with mesothelioma. So if you are living next to, you know, uh, a big teaching hospital or cancer centre, then the likelihood is that you will meet clinicians who have been used to treating mesothelioma. If you live in a very rural part of the country with a small DGH near you, it's less likely. And what we try to do is position our nurses geographically around the country. So they're from Cornwall to Inverness, Kent, northeast, northwest, south, um, Wales, so that um, they have a geographical responsibility to raise the profile of mesothelioma, to spread the gospel and to um, tap in to in any way, shape or form to anybody affected by the disease within that region. They also have a role to play in education of healthcare professionals, again, raising the profile of mesothelioma across their region. And then the other thing um, that we try to um, encourage the nurses to do um, is to um, set up support groups regionally so that patients can meet other patients. I think there's nothing quite like meeting other people that are living with your disease. And um, finally, I would say <clears throat> clinical trials. So we fund research, but we also try to ensure equitable access to clinical trials because often clinical trials are at the cutting edge of those new treatments and therapies that can offer hope and treatment options when the tried and tested standard treatments have been used. And Mick, you've also had some experience of, of, of research and trials. Can you tell us a bit more detail about your treatment plan? Yes, I think the, the, the summary headline of um, my treatment plan is that some of the things that have helped me live were close to being in a test tube when I was diagnosed. And I find that an immensely optimistic thought. But so what I have done is I had uh, an, uh, an operation 
called a radical pleurectomy and decortification. If you ask me what all that means, I couldn't tell you, but they scraped all the cancer off the side of my lung and that took place in 2013. I then had um, uh, a uh, series of six uh, chemotherapy treatments, uh, which were pretty awful uh, because of a drug called uh, cisplatin. Uh, and then for two years, I had no cancer in me at all. And it came back in 2016, and I did another uh, line of six uh, uh, chemotherapy treatments, this time with a drug called carboplatin, which was much kinder to me. It still wasn't pleasant, but it was much kinder. Uh, I then went on a drugs trial in Lille, uh, to test whether uh, two forms of immunotherapy drug or just one form was better. Um, there was no placebo. Uh, there were 125 trialists, um, of whom two were British. I was lucky to be one of them. Uh, so I did that for 15 months on a drug called nivolumab, which I think is now pretty much uh, a or, or is certainly much more standard than it was then. And Liz would know about that. Um, then I, the, the tumour started to grow again, and I had three or four months of doing nothing, which was delicious. And then I did another line of chemotherapy, this time with a pill-based uh, drug called vinorelbine, which took me through till about June, July 2018. And then, and in, in the process of this, I started going to Leicester, where I met Liz and the uh, her extraordinary uh, professor, Dean Fennell. And as a result of uh, an investigation into my genome, uh, they discovered um, that I had a... Uh, mutation which they actually weren't expecting me to have which is very common in people with skin cancers and incredibly rare if not unique in people with lung cancers and so they put me on a, a licensed drug for skin cancers for uh, a cancer called basal cell carcinoma and, uh, uh, and, and the drug itself was called bismodigib and I have been taking that for over two years now, which I think is probably a year longer than my team expected. Um, and the results were dramatic um, in that my cancer, my tumour shrank by about 30 to 40 percent and pretty much went to sleep. Um, it's beginning to wake up. And so I'm, in about three or four weeks time, I should be having um cyber knife to zap one particular tumor so that's my um that is my the story there's rather too much detail there when i was diagnosed people explained to me what immunotherapy was like it was a sort of thing from outer space and they didn't even call it immunotherapy in those days and now it is a standard option and this uh, gene-based treatment, nobody even mentioned to me to me until about three years ago. Um, and I'm hoping, of course, that that will become 
a standardized line of treatment in in you know a very short time and liz mixed path treatment is unusual for example trials in france but what advice would you give to patients that are keen to explore all potential avenues what i would say to anybody is you know don't be afraid to raise the question of clinical trials with your local oncologist and ask about what's available in the rest of the country Meso UK have um, a list that's on our website. We're soon to launch an app that lists all clinical trials that are available. And although Mick has had a number of treatments, including Viz Modigib, that isn't on a clinical trial, um, it was seeking out clinical trials that probably led him to um, those options. Um, so seeking out clinical trials um, and going to centres with a portfolio of clinical trials really takes you to the cutting edge of the NHS. And, um, you know, so that's what I would urge people to do is, you know, just do your homework, look around, pick up the phone to Meso UK, speak to your local oncologist and just, you know, treat the NHS as a national service. And you may not be able to get it at your local hospital. You may have to travel, but we will support you and help you to do that. And Ian, from a legal point of view, um, what's your involvement in medical side of things, in immunotherapy? What sort of things do you have to talk to your clients about? I think that what the last, you know, four or five years have taught me, and, you know, I first met Mick probably five years ago, um, not quite as long ago as you, Joanne. But um, I think what the last few years of it have shown is that... um, it's increasingly important for um, solicitors like me and you acting for people with um, mesothelioma um, and perhaps other cancers as well to to have a good relationship with uh, the clinicians and to have an understanding of um, the medicine that is out there. Our role is, is changing. Um, it's evolving as medicine is in like so many areas of life. And the law sort of adapts to life, but is probably one or two paces behind. And hopefully in the not too distant future with our um, skills as um, specialist lawyers used within the context of doing what we do, we will be able to support patients in achieving the sorts of uh, outcomes that Nick has had, you know, seven years post diagnosis and with the quality of life that he has had in the meantime with um, all the wonderful experiences that he's had and described so well in, in in his book. And that's not just important to to Mick, but it's obviously important to his family. And I say that for a man, I think I'm about the same age now as Mick was when he was diagnosed. Um, and I can't, I can imagine just how difficult that was um, at the time was that Mick was told this uh, this earth shattering news. But I think for us, it's really about making sure that um, we leave no stone unturned and making sure that the patient's or the client's long-term position is as protected as it possibly can be. Mick, in your book, you speak fondly about one of your consultants, Professor Sanjay Popat, an oncologist at the Royal Marsden. And he said, Mick is a remarkable individual, an absolute testament to the cutting edge of modern cancer research. So in what ways do you hope that your experience provides hope to cancer sufferers around the world? What I have been able to do 
uh, is to live a long and fulfilling life after having had a terminal diagnosis. And I think that is um, something that might give others optimism. I appreciate not everyone will be as lucky as I have been, but the thought that you could live a long and fulfilling life once you've had a terminal diagnosis was one that never even occurred to me. So, Mick, why did you decide to write a book and how do you feel now that it's been published? Why did I decide to write a book? Uh, I wrote it partly because um, my parents were interesting, uh, amusing and good people. And my, because of the, they, they died before my children were born, I rather wanted my children to know about them. Uh, and in a similar way, I would be very lucky to see many of my grandchildren. I thought it might be quite nice for my grandchildren to know what sort of person their grandfather was. And the fact that notwithstanding this diagnosis, the final years of his life were very happy. And what made you decide to donate all of the money to charity? Because I never expected it to be published. I never thought I'd make any money out of it. Uh, and therefore, uh, I wasn't giving up anything that I thought I was going to get. Um, slightly more seriously, I wanted and hoped it might encourage others to give to charity. I have been uh, the beneficiary of other people's investment in cancer charities and a massive beneficiary of other people's uh, investment in cancer uh, charities and so i'd just like to do my own bit to try and encourage more giving talk to us about one of your favorite parts of the book you will be a better judge of this than i will but i think the book is a very happy book which is um of one with my observation that um uh, my final years have been very happy years. Um, I mean, one of one of the my favourite stories was my first meeting with Sanjay Popet, which went incredibly well. Um, I took to him immediately because he's a very humane and uh, thoughtful character. But he advised me that he was going to put me on this drug cisplatin and told me that I might lose my fertility. Uh, and he said this in a very somber voice. He was slightly surprised when Jill, my wife, and I started laughing because we've already had six children. And my mother-in-law has been trying to stop us breeding since number three. So uh, it was just a moment of absolute joy uh, in what was actually at that time quite a bleak period. And we talked earlier, Mick, about your legal claim. It forms part of your story and, and you describe it in the book. Why was it important to you uh, to be successful in that claim? I've always been a fan of um, whodunits and crossword puzzles. And I think I just wanted to solve the puzzle. Um, but I just wanted to know more about why. Um, and over time, we peeled back the case and we did reach a settlement, um, which was good because I've never had any doubt as 
to where I was exposed. So I think it was more trying to solve the puzzle. The money has come in helpful, going to Lille on the Eurostar every fortnight for a, 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 a you know a year and a half costs a lot of money. Um, but I just wanted to get to the bottom of it. My whole view of the legal world and the legal system came out of the process completely and utterly enhanced. I thought, I mean, I really thought it was a process that worked well. And that's not because I uh, didn't fail, quote unquote, one. It was because the whole way in which it was handled was with integrity, humanity and honesty. And those really are very important values. Uh, and Ian, we talked earlier about the fact that this was a particularly complex matter. Uh, can you explain why that was? Uh, I've been doing the, this job on behalf of people like Mick for over for about 25 years now. And um, the, the types of people who are affected by this illness um, have changed. And uh, if we are dealing with shipbuilders, it's a, often a, sadly a well-trodden path, equally the same for construction workers. But for people who've worked in offices um, who aren't familiar with construction techniques or what sort of dust is in the air um, it, it really is uh, it's it's about um, pulling together the right sort of information it's about uh, getting hold of difficult information um, and one of the things that uh, you know Mick's right in that when I first met him I certainly told him that it would be a very very difficult case but um, things change and you work, things only change when you get new information, when you get hold of new people that you speak to and mixed tenacity in getting hold of um, former colleagues, many of whom he hadn't spoken with for many years. Uh, it's testament to just how what a strong personality he has and how popular he's remained with those people, despite not having worked in the banking environment for many years. But I would say it was about teamwork it was about tenacity it was about understanding of the documentation and, and to some degree it was about it was about patience um, pulling all of this information together both mick and liz as well as both being thought leaders you've both been recognized in the queen's honors for your contribution to the charity sector mick charities played an important part in your life uh, David Cameron described your social enterprise business, Blue Sky, as being the only company in the country where you need a criminal record to work there. So how did that come about and why are you really proud of that achievement? Blue Sky was set up because um, I read somewhere that having a job cut the probability of reoffending by up to 50%. But people weren't really getting jobs when they left prison. Something like three quarters of people who left prison weren't being employed. And so with a sort of obstinacy, which you might recognize from time to time, I um, thought, right, well, I'll set up a company where you could only get a job if you've got a criminal record. Um, and it, it, I never really thought it would be a great success, actually, because it was such a sort of daft idea. But um, I just thought it might make people sit up and take notice. Anyway. I got very lucky and I met some very talented people. 
two or three of whom were ex-offenders. And we set up this social enterprise, which did grounds maintenance work, and off we went. And um, we kept on winning contracts uh, and, um, you know, still going. And at this point in time, I think it's employed since over the last 15 years, something like 1,800 ex-offenders, which means that I am probably the uh, single greatest employer of ex-offenders in the country, or the boss of the single greatest number of ex-offenders, past or present. And I think that is something that, um, uh, you know, means a lot, means a lot to me. So Liz, why is Mesothelioma UK so important to you? Well, it's my life's work. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think um, my background's respiratory. It's not cancer. I recognise as soon as I started working in lung cancer that mesothelioma patients felt as if they were the poor relations in in lung cancer, and um, with the help of Macmillan Cancer Support, that's you know how we set about developing a bespoke support service for people with mesothelioma. And Mick, when he refers to his OBE, he he said his dad said it's other buggers' efforts. That's what OBE stands for. And I, I was trying to think of something for MBE because it's exactly that, really. It's a, it's a recognition for the team and everything that Meso UK has achieved. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think it shone a light um, on the work of the charity. And, you know, as we've said, charities need every bit of publicity, support and help they can get. And the MBE, MBE has been phenomenally helpful in that respect. Um, so, yeah, I'm... I'm, I'm you know, absolutely overwhelmed and delighted about the MBE and very, very grateful to the patient who actually led the nomination for me. Uh, and Ian, at Erwin Mitchell, we consider our responsibility to our communities as, as one of our key pillars. So what's your experience of the importance of charities and uh, specifically Mesothelioma UK? I think it's important that we all recognise the role that charities play in our communities and from um, the hospices that we um, that we support um, for both independently of and through the cases that we um, pursue, um, and we're all going to uh, we're all probably going to make the use of the uh, charity sector at some point in our lives. And I think it's important that as members of communities we uh, support those charities, uh, which is why um, we have supported. Um, uh, Mesothelioma UK for many years and uh, in fact Nick came to our Mesothelioma UK charity event uh, last year which raised quite a lot of money for uh, for the charity and also um, we were part of the uh, group that founded the June Hancock Mesothelioma Research Fund uh, certainly 15 plus years ago. So I think the charity sector plays an important part in all of our lives and I think it's important that no matter what the charity is um, and Lord knows they're having a difficult time during this uh, COVID period but I think it's really important that we recognise the extremely important role that they all play in contributing to the society and making our society uh, better. Mick in terms of your book for me personally it was was really wonderful to read it. I obviously uh, experienced some of the journey with you as you went through it so to read it afterwards um putting it all together i found fascinating and certainly i think would be uplifting for people um during difficult times 
But one of the reasons for that was your interest in fishing. Why did that have such a positive impact on you? Fishing is an odd sport. Uh, It's a very popular sport. It's the most popular participant sport in the country. Um, It's a very odd sport because you are pitted against an animal, which you've got to, and you've got to deceive the animal into uh, making a mistake. Um, The joy of fishing is you then don't have to shed blood, which I particularly like. So what you find is that it is totally absorbing. Um, And at the beginning of my journey with cancer, um, that absorption for six to eight hours a day was a magnificent uh, release from the very great anguish that I had. Um, And it helped that uh, I was diagnosed in May, which is one of the great times for fly fishing in this country. And all through that summer, when I badly needed uh, diversions and things to look forward to, there was always you know, a a day's fishing in prospect. And so um, that is uh, why I think I wrote about it. Of course, the the best fishing books are not really about fishing, because that would be quite boring. The best fishing books are about all sorts of other things, about life, about friendship. And, you know, the... um, the, the, the sport is just the prism through which you project whatever you want to project. So that's why I wrote about fishing. It, you know, it, it is an extraordinary coincidence that um, the iller I got, the more I enjoyed my fishing. And rather strangely, the better I became at fishing. So there's a chart at the very back of the book that shows that I've since been diagnosed with mesothelioma my ability to catch fish has gone up. Now, I don't understand it. I think I could explain it, but I'd bore you rigid. But, um, you know, there's a happy little outcome that we weren't expecting in May 2013. Well, I can certainly remember one or two meetings being arranged around particular fishing activities that you had in mind. There was one marvellous time when I was told by my wife I had to grow up because I was trying the first... Uh, appointment with the professor in Lille clashed with a fishing date and I proposed not to go to it because I wanted to go fishing and she told me I had to grow up and take life seriously. (laughs) Mick I know that you don't like to advise others on on what they should do but as a final thought what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned throughout this experience? If you are if you project a happy face then people will be happy back. <laughs> that will make you happy. And it was told to me by my friend Jonathan Aitken uh, in terms that I could understand. And I think that was the best advice I was given. If you are happy, people will be happy back at you. And if they're happy back at you, you will feel happy. So thank you to Ian, Liz and, of course, Mick for joining us today. Mick's book, Cancer and Pisces, is available now from Amazon or wherever you get your books from. And that's it for today. 
Thanks for listening to the Erwin Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. In the meantime, stay safe.